We are uh, thinking together in this sermon series about the simple question, did Jesus really say that? Because sometimes the teachings of Jesus, the words of Jesus, especially in the Sermon on the Mount, are challenging, and they are indeed counterintuitive and countercultural. And in just a moment, I'm going to read another one of those difficult but important teachings of Jesus from Matthew chapter, uh, tw- chapter 5, verses 21 and following. But before I do that, I invite us to bow our heads together for a time of prayer and meditation. Would you bow with me, please? We're grateful, God, for the mystery of prayer, for the mystery of worship, for the way that we can be here physically in our own skin with one another and yet somehow be transported into a special place at your throne of grace to receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. We thank you for attending to the cares of our families and loved ones. We pray your richest blessings and special care upon our sick, our discouraged, our grieving, our lonely. We pray for our military personnel everywhere, and we pray that there might be peace in our world. We pray for refugees fleeing scenes of war. We pray, dear God, for our world uh, that, that seems to be in such turmoil. We ask, God, that you bless the church all over the world today, that she may have the courage to persevere, and especially in places where there is hardship and persecution. We ask, God, that you bless us as we follow Christ, and whatever might be the discouragement or the burden or the distraction or the worry or the temptation or the issues facing each of us this morning, may we know the promise of Scripture that no testing has occurred, but such is common to all, that you are faithful, you will not allow us to be tested beyond what we are able, and that you are faithful and will, with the testing, provide a way of escape that we may be able to bear it. Help us to hang on to these promises and to hang on to you. Guide us, God, as your faithful people in understanding your word for us this morning. We pray this together in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Now I'm going to read from Matthew's uh, Gospel, chapter 5, beginning in verse 21, and I invite you to stand with me if you're able, please. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of ancient times, You shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be liable to judgment. But I say to you that if you are angry with a brother or sister, you will be liable to judgment, and if you insult a brother or sister, you will be liable to the council, and if you say you fool, you will be liable to the hell of fire. So when you are offering your gift at the altar, if you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother or sister, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're on the way to court with him. Or your accuser may hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you will be thrown into prison. Truly I tell you, 
you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. May he bless us with understanding. You may be seated. True story. There's a little church in South St. Joseph, Missouri, uh, just a, a few blocks south of the church I pastored for several years. And uh, the name of the little church, tucked away in a residential section of South St. Joseph, is Carnegie Baptist Church. Years ago, uh, at the conclusion of the Sunday school hour, a little boy volunteered to pray the closing prayer at the end of Sunday school hour. So he started praying. He said, God, thank you for our parents and thank you for our Sunday school teachers. And his friend, while, while the boy was praying, his friend was poking him in the ribs, trying to get him to laugh or trying to get him to be distracted. But the little fellow persevered and he just kept praying and finally he couldn't stand it anymore and his friend had been poking him in the ribs and finally the little boy in the middle of his prayer said, just a minute, Lord. And he turned around and he just pouted his uh, friend right in the arm really hard. And then he bowed his head again and he said, and Lord, forgive us our sins in Jesus' name, amen. (laughs) That really happened. And I thought that's a pretty good working parable for life and the way we see the disconnect between church and real life. You know, we can come to church and say our pretty God words, you know, our pretty God words in song or spoken word or prayer. Uh, We can even give something in the offering plate. We can do all the God things, but it seemingly has no connection to the way we treat other people or the grudges we bear, or the devils that we are in terms of creating mischief and hardship in relationships. It's like there's, a, there's this disconnect between those, those little prayers that we say and the way we live our lives. And Jesus said, nothing doing. That's not the way it's going to be. Jesus said, that's not the way it's supposed to be. If you look at the scripture carefully and just begin at the beginning, I want you to notice that Jesus assumes we will worship. Because Jesus did not say in verse 21, if you are offering your gift at the altar, he said, when you are offering your gift at the altar. Jesus assumes we will be worshiping. Jesus knows we were made for God We long for God. We long for worship. We need God deeply within our souls. And so Jesus knew that worship was a given of our existence. So he said, when? But notice a second assumption that Jesus made. Jesus assumed that for us, worship would be costly. When you are offering your gift at the altar, Jesus assumed that worship for us would be a costly experience. That is to say that it would require something of us. I don't know how to say this nicely, so I'll just say it. We're pretty sloppy about worship. We are shallow. We we really come and expect Doyle and Rod to do our work for us. We come and expect the choir to deliver for us or the praise team 
or the solo, and we want people up here to do our work. We don't prepare mentally. We don't prepare spiritually. When we're here, we're not always here. We seem to send God a text message or a, an email that says something like, God, I'm really in a hurry today. I'll meet you at the corner of hurry and rush. So just give me something. Make it fast. And by the way, God, it better be really, really good. Because I like really, really good worship. That's how we do it. But Jesus is telling an example here of what worship is all about. And and scholars believe that the wording of Jesus is describing a worship experience not in a local synagogue, in one of those little buildings in the tiny villages, but that he is actually describing worship in the temple, the one and only temple, the Jewish temple, holy place, divine place, a place that was sacred to the Jews. In fact, to the Jew of Jesus' day, the temple was not simply a place. The temple was an institution. One of the things that got Jesus crucified is that he talked about the destruction of the temple, and for the Jew, that was unacceptable. The temple and temple worship was a holy, hushed, reverent, powerful, sacred experience. Can you imagine being in divine worship in the temple and bringing your cereal offering? Or if you were poor, bringing two pigeons as your offering? Or if it was a major holiday, bringing a goat to be sacrificed? And right at that high and holy moment of divine worship, as you're ready to present your gift to God, you stand up and say, as everyone is gasping, you stand up and say, time out, God, pause. I just remembered. Somebody has something against me. Hold that thought. I'll be right back. Every Jew who heard Jesus say these words would have been aghast. But Jesus said, right relationships horizontally are just as important as the vertical dimension of our relationship with God. And so you see, you begin to ask the question, why are we, why are we here in worship in the first place? Well, it's because we sense that something in our relationship vertically with God has been disrupted. It's called sin. It's called failure and brokenness. And, and because of that sense of failure and guilt and sin and brokenness, we are here attempting to experience this vertical dimension of relationship. Well, Jesus was quick to say in this story, the horizontal relationship is just as fractured. There's just as much disruption in our horizontal relationships as in the vertical, and that we need to be paying just as much attention to those relationships. In fact, have you noticed the way Jesus tells this, uh, just offers this entire teaching, have you noticed in your own life that sometimes it's when we are in worship 
of God that God will bring to mind some relationship out there that's not right. It's actually the worship of God that sometimes triggers the memory of some fractured horizontal relationship. That's why worship is so scary. That's why worship is so incredibly important, but so frightening and so powerful. I loved the dramatic reading this morning because there's really no hiding from the God who made us. This God who made us knows that worship for us is a unique experience where we allow someone besides ourselves to be inside here. Worship is that time when we allow someone besides ourselves to rummage around in here and to name the darkness, to name the sin, to name with honesty the brokenness that's in here. And when you allow God's Spirit in to do that kind of work, it's scary. Things will happen. Things will will change. And Jesus was absolutely insistent that both the horizontal and the vertical were crucial and that worship always issues in action. I want to show you these verbs that are named in mostly verse 24. Uh, And on the left-hand side, vertically going down, these are the action verbs that Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar, go and reconcile, offer to make peace, and then make friends or, or quickly come to terms is another phrasing of that translation. So here are Jesus' action commands that are a part of worship on the left-hand side. Leave, go, reconcile, make friends. Those are all listed in Scripture. But to show you how countercultural this teaching is, to show you how, how this is so startling and difficult for us, on the right-hand side are our preferred responses. Rather than leave worship to make things right, we want to hide in church. We think if we'll stay in church long enough, those problems will go away. Rather than go, we want to stay in comfort. Rather than reconcile, we'd rather carry a grudge. And rather than offer reconciliation, we'd we'd like to withhold as a sense of power. And rather than making friends or quickly coming to terms, we'd rather remain aloof and keep our distance so that we didn't have to work at relationships. See, what Jesus was saying here is that you can be doctrinally sound and be empty of love. You can believe all the right doctrines and you can can just memorize every verse about every one of those doctrines, but you can be empty of love. You can be the one in the house that prays the most. You can be the one in the house that reads your Bible the most and yet be a relationship fraud. Totally fake in the horizontal dimension. And Jesus said, 
It's all connected. It's all connected. There is no separation. Now, we have this nasty habit of uh, building silos within our hearts. We build these little compartments by which we can wall off other parts of our lives, we think. You know, here's our relationship with God, but we want to wall that off from our relationships that are broken with other people. And we think that because we wall them off, they're none of God's business, but it's all God's business. I want to give you an example of, uh, of how we sometimes uh, do that walling off. There was a survey conducted by the University of Michigan. This was several years ago, so the numbers are probably not fresh, although I don't think the percentages are probably going to vary uh, very much. It was a University of, of Michigan uh, so, uh, so, uh, Department of Social Psychology that did a study on forgiveness. And here's what they found that of the people surveyed, 75% believed that God had forgiven them. But notice the drop, only 52% of those people have forgiven others. Convenient. I believe in God's forgiveness of me, but by the way, I don't forgive others. 60% of those who were surveyed said they had forgiven themselves for failures. But those same people, 43%, had asked forgiveness of others, of infractions and hurts they had committed. You You see the discrepancy? We're always ready to receive God's forgiveness, always ready to forgive ourselves, but not as not as quick, not as fast to forgive others or to ask forgiveness of others. But it's all one fabric. Consider the word reconcile in verse 24. I looked up the Greek word and and did a little word study on this. And as far back as as, uh, anybody can trace the word, it's a a compound word made up of to change and to be cut through. And so you put the word reconcile together and it means to be changed clear through to be changed clear through. That is to say that when we experience reconciliation, we're never the same. When we're reconciled with God, we're not the same as before. When we're reconciled to others, we're not the same as before. We are changed clear through. There's some kind of transformation that happens. And I think most of us would admit readily, we like the comfort parts of the gospel better than the transformation parts of the gospel. And we like the comfort parts of worship better than the transformation parts of worship. But to experience reconciliation in Jesus Christ is to be changed clear through in all of our connections, in all of our relationships. I want to tell you a story about Jutta, J-U-T-T-A. She was a nurse in Germany in World War II. Jutta once observed the head nurse, the nursing supervisor, bawling out a new young employee, a young nurse. I mean, this head nurse was just, was just cruelly bawling out this, this young employee. 
Jetta observed all that. And when that scene had ended, she noticed that the head nurse, the, the chief nurse, was gathering up her purse and putting on her hat, getting ready to go to church on Sunday. It was a Sunday. And so Jetta, being a Christian, challenged the head nurse, having heard what she'd heard, and she said to the head nurse, I don't think you should go to church. Based on Matthew 5, you should seek reconciliation with the one you've offended before you go to divine worship. And the head nurse said to Jutta, you don't understand the kind of pressure I'm under. You don't understand the responsibilities I have. You don't understand how many times this same young employee has made that same mistake. And the head nurse said, it's just unforgivable. Well, that word triggered something in Jutta. Jutta said, Adolf Hitler put my father in a concentration camp, but my father forgave Adolf Hitler. Jutta's last name was Niemöller. Her father was the German pastor Martin Niemöller, who was imprisoned by the Nazis and later set free. Anybody here this morning having trouble with relationships? Well, if you are, I have an encouraging word for us from Jesus. Jesus says that the energy that we need to work at broken relationships horizontally, the energy we need, we find at the altar. Because when we're at the altar, we meet Jesus. And Jesus is both the high priest and the sacrifice. Have you ever thought about that? That scripture calls Jesus both the priest and the sacrifice? He's died for our sins. And so Jesus says, take energy and strength for all of your relationship issues at the altar. Because at the altar we meet Jesus who is priest and sacrifice. And we leave the altar this morning to go out into a world knowing that the risen Christ who forgave his murderers is walking with us. And we don't go into any relationship by ourselves. Every relationship struggle we walk into, we walk with the risen Christ who forgave his murderers. And we hear the word of Jesus that says, be reconciled to God and to others. Let's pray together.